Hello, friends. Welcome again to our Bible study uh, on the book of 1 Corinthians. And I'm so delighted that you're sharing this time uh, with me. I appreciate the opportunity uh, to talk about Scripture and to uh, spend some time in in an in-depth study of God's Word. We'll be looking today at 1 Corinthians chapter 11, picking up at verse 17. And my intent is just to go from verse 17 to verse 23. Um, and then we'll pick up after that next week as we continue in, in regards to that same topic that Paul's going to begin to discuss this week. Uh, let me set the stage for this text by saying this. We as human beings need to be careful uh, when we gather, when we start participating in a herd activity. We need to be careful because one of the things that we know from uh, human history is that we will do things as groups that we would probably never do as individuals. Uh, the great Christian ethicist Niebuhr one time wrote a book called Moral Man and Immoral Society where he taught that principle that, um, you know, when we come together as a group, as a, as a society, um, we, we are liable to do things that are far worse than what we would do as individuals. For instance, uh, we, we'll wage war, we'll wage, wage genocide, uh, we, we, we'll do stuff that will lead to thousands or millions of people being killed. We, we would never do that one-on-one. -on -one. We would never do that as individuals, but there's something about human nature when it comes together, uh, the propensity for evil, the propensity to do wrong, the propensity for abuse can really be magnified and become more than just the sum total of its parts. So what Paul's talking about in our text today is uh, abuse surrounding the Lord's Supper in the life of the Christian community. Uh, this will make more sense as we go through the text. The text that we'll look at today, verses 17 through 22, he begins addressing the abuse of the Corinthian church concerning the observance of the Lord's Supper. Then verses 23 through the end of the chapter, he's going to be talking a little bit more about uh, the nature of the Lord's Supper itself. Uh, let me say this, another general principle that, that, that I learned from this part of 1 Corinthians, uh, besides being careful that we don't do things, uh, heinous things, horrendous things as groups, that we would never do as individuals. We also need to understand that we have to be careful of ever making arguments from silence. Uh, and people do that. And I remember when I went to undergraduate school, we, we um, all in, this, in, the, in that college had to take logic, which was a good thing. And uh, we, we learned fallacious arguments. And we learned that an argument from silence is by its very nature uh, prone to being a fallacious argument. You know, an argument from silence is something like this. Well, Jesus never said anything about, pick a topic, homosexuality. Therefore, I'm going to draw these conclusions about Jesus and homosexuality. Uh, sometimes uh, when we don't speak on a subject, um, it may mean that we think 
the matter concerning that subject is common sense, should be common knowledge. Um, an argument from silence is, is always a dubious argument upon which to base any idea. You need some data. And lack of data really doesn't tell you anything specifically. You need to be careful from saying that the silence somehow uh, leads you to any conclusion. In this text, Paul's going to be talking about the Lord's Supper. You know, I'm grateful, this sounds strange, but I'm grateful that the Corinthian church so abused the observance of the Lord's Supper that it led Paul to address the Lord's Supper. If it had not been for their abuse, Paul would never have addressed the Lord's Supper in any of his writings um, because it really doesn't occur anywhere else in his writings. Now, the Lord's Supper was something that the early Christian community uh, was observing weekly. It was something very much a part of the early Christian community. We know that from other places, uh, other writings, other authors. But Paul just never addresses it. Uh, it was such a normal part of their early Christian life. Paul never addresses it until he has to in this text uh, because of abuses of the Lord's Supper. And an argument from silence would be something like, well, Paul never mentions the Lord's Supper, so therefore they must not have been observing it in the early Christian community. Well, we know that to be fallacious. Um, but it's true that Paul never mentions it. Uh, except in, in, in a few places, very few places, and particularly here in 1 Corinthians. Uh, so I'm grateful that at least the abuse of the Lord's Supper by the Corinthian church elicited um, this response from the Apostle Paul. And um, because of the abuse of the Lord's Supper there at Corinth, we have the earliest writing in the New Testament, the oldest writing in the New Testament about the Lord's Supper here in 1 Corinthians because, of course, uh, Paul's letters are older than the Gospels. So what, what we read here in Paul's letters about the Lord's Supper uh, is the oldest, um, oldest documentation we have about the Lord's Supper. But he would have never mentioned it, uh, perhaps, had it not been for the abuse of, of that uh, sacred meal there in the church at Corinth. So with those two general remarks, uh, let's get into this text where Paul is going to talk about how the church there in Corinth abused their observance of the Lord's Supper. And everything that we know about the Corinthian church up to this point, um, if you can kind of take your memory, take your mind back over uh, everything that Paul has said to the Corinthian church, almost everything we know about the Corinthian church um, makes what he says here uh, make a lot of sense. So let's start at verse 17 to see how these early Christians in Corinth were abusing the Lord's Supper. Verse 17, Paul says, But in the following instructions, I do not commend you, because when you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. So he's getting ready to talk about the way they abused the Lord's Supper. He says to begin with, he's not going to compliment them, commend them over the way they're doing it, because when they come together to observe the Lord's Supper, you think that'd be a wonderful thing, but when they come together to observe the Lord's Supper, uh, they come together for worse instead of better. Again, back to what I said about being careful about our group activity. Sometimes when people get together as groups, um, 
they can do far more horrendous behavior, far more heinous behavior, behavior than they would ever do individually. Again, think about the recent uh, attack on uh, our, our National Capitol building in Washington, D.C., that large, large group. I'm sure most everyone in that group would have never done it just as lone individuals. But there's something empowering about doing something as the group. There's, there's something that is encouraging uh, when you do it as a group. And so evidently the early church here in Corinth was um, uh, observing the Lord's Supper in a way that uh, Paul termed abuse. It was the wrong way to observe the Lord's Supper. So it's clear in verse 17, so your question now should be, wonder what they were doing to um, mess up uh, their celebration of the Lord's Supper. Let's keep reading. Verse 18, For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you, and I believe it in part. Um, we shouldn't be surprised. He's spoken before in 1 Corinthians about the cliques or the divisions or the schisms or the little groups uh, that the Corinthian church had divided up into and how they uh, were not a unified body. And they would not have been a large congregation there in Corinth this early in the church's history. It might have really just been one house church, maybe a few more than one house church, but it wouldn't have been a large community. But you don't have to have very many people together before divisions and conflicts happen. So uh, we, we've learned up to this point in 1 Corinthians that this group of very gifted early Christians uh, was prone to disagreement and contention and division and arguments, uh, th thinking that their spiritual gifts were better than other people's spiritual gifts. So even in, obviously in some ways, we're going to see it, but even in their observance of the Lord's Supper, um, it just displays their division. It just displays their lack of unity. And he says, I hear that there are divisions among you, and I believe it in part, going out of verse 19, for there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. Now, what in the world is Paul saying there when he says there must be divisions among you so that the genuine can be recognized? I, I follow the lead of uh, New Testament scholars such as N.T. Wright, who at this point says, Paul is being sarcastic. And we've seen Paul do that already in 1 Corinthians, where um, he uses sarcasm to make his points. So um, I think he's being sarcastic when he says to these Corinthians, there must be, there has to be. It is, you know, it is necessary for there to be factions among you in order that you as a group can show who the most genuine are. Um, I think he's being sarcastic. I think he's uh, trying to um, reflect their behavior back to them. Uh, they, there were people in the group so concerned about their status, their role in the community, their place in the community, that divisions were essential to these people so that the genuine or the supreme or the real deals um, could be recognized. Uh, we shouldn't seek that type of recognition in the body of Christ, and we'll say some more in a little bit, in a little bit about about unity in general. But let's let's go on with what he's saying. Verse twenty: When you come together, it is not the Lord's supper that you eat. 
Uh, So you see Paul terming it here, the Lord's Supper. Paul will use other terms for this sacred meal. We've already um, seen in chapter 10 the word communion is used for this meal. We're going to see uh, before the end of this chapter in, in next week's text that the word Eucharist or Thanksgiving is used for this meal. So these are all biblical terms for this meal. But Paul here refers to it as the Lord's Supper. Uh, If you want to, you can translate this, the supper of the Lord. And if you would like, you can translate that, the supper that you have with the Lord. The supper, the meal that you share with the Lord. Um, So obviously when they come together, um, they're so abusing the Lord's supper. Paul says that's not what really is going on. It's not a supper that uh, Jesus would take credit for. It's not a supper where you're really sharing a meal with the Lord. Something else on a different level completely is happening in the sharing of this meal. Um, Let's go on and I'll explain a little more about how this meal occurred in the early church. Verse 21, for in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and to drink in? Or, you, or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I not commend you in this? No, I will not, Paul says. So let me, let me paint a possible picture for what's happening here. And um, because we know the Corinthian church, we, we, we know that this is very much a possibility. Because we know human nature, we know that this is very much a possibility. So let's talk early church for a few moments. Every, every Lord's Day, the early Christian community would get together and they would share a meal. Uh, it is, by the end of the New Testament, it is being termed the agape meal or the love meal or the love feast. Uh, it would be um, something very much akin to uh, um, a potluck dinner in a, in a congregation where people would bring food and share it. And that would be the beginning of this sacred time, the sharing of the agape meal, the sharing of a fellowship meal, the sharing of table fellowship. Uh, it'd be a way of remembering how often Jesus shared table fellowship in the Gospels, how often he spent time at table with others during his earthly ministry. Um, they would share a real meal, and they would bring food. And then uh, at some point... Um, People who had not completely professed faith in the living Christ uh, and in the work and the person of Christ uh, would be dismissed. And then they would participate a little bit more fully in what, what we know as something akin to our sacrament, uh, the sharing of the body and blood of Christ. But there'd be an agape part of the meal that was a serious meal that would be pretty widely open to the public, any, any seekers that was trying to learn what Christ and this Christian community was about. So in the early church, the agape meal, the love feast, and what we call the sacrament of the Eucharist or the Lord's Supper or the Mass or whatever we want to call that sacred meal, uh, was just two parts of, of one sacred meal. Uh, the word is denepton in, um, in Greek, and it really means the main meal of the day, the supper. Um, we in the South know about suppers. Uh, I grew up knowing that you had breakfast, 
Then you had dinner in the middle of the day, and then you had supper. was your big meal at night. Uh, Dinepton, the Greek word for supper, really means the big meal of the day, usually late afternoon. You would come together after the work of the day, and you would linger over this meal. It would be a great time of fellowship. Uh, You wouldn't hurriedly eat this meal. Um, Well, this is the what becomes the agape meal, the love feast in the early Christian community that then also uh, morphs into uh, the sharing of the body and the blood of Christ to remember Jesus' institution of this meal. Uh, But you'd have this literal meal at the beginning. People would bring food. What appears to be happening, and again, we understand human nature, so we, we can understand how this happens. What appears to be happening, people are bringing food to this meal. They're bringing drink, wine to this meal. But they're not sharing. They're not sharing. The early Christian community was far, far more diverse than the Greco-Roman world in general in the way they gathered. Uh, the Greco-Roman world was very much a segregated, stratified culture. You had male, female, slave, free. You had Greek, barbarian. You had Gentile, Jew. There were so many divisions in the ancient Greek world that um, um, the early Christian communities showed the world something different. Uh, We know this from the New Testament. In Christ, there's neither male nor female. There's neither free nor slave. Um, there's, there's, There's neither Jew nor Greek. Uh, We see that kind of language in the New Testament. So the early Christian community, uh, particularly compared to anything else the human race has created, was very much an egalitarian community. And because it was an egalitarian community, you brought people from different walks of life, different socioeconomic levels together. Well, as still happens in the body of Christ today, people group with their own kind sometimes. And they're not very welcoming to people that are not part of their own little tribe. So obviously what was happening here in, the, in, the, in the, the love feast was it wasn't really showing much love. People would bring their food. They wouldn't share. The wealthier people had a lot of food, uh, had a lot of wine, a lot of drink. The poorer people, I mean, you might have slaves coming straight to this meal from the day's work. They might have bread and water that they would bring. Well, rather than everybody sharing what everybody had, um, the little groups had their own little individual private parties. It kind of reminds me of church dinners when everybody has to sit with certain people at those church dinners, and they have to sit with those groups at church dinners. That's what was going on here. And that's why Paul says stuff like, um, you know, do you not have houses to eat and drink in? The main purpose of this meal is not to just fill your, your belly. Uh, the purpose of this meal is to create fellowship, to create the body of Christ, to bring unity to the body of Christ. But sometimes the church can come together, and that's not what is created by the coming together of the church. That's why Paul says, your coming together is not for good, but it's for harm. So evidently something like that was happening uh, here as he's as these early Christians were gathering. Um, you know, just a few more words about, about the kind of unity that this central meal, this central act of worship, this epitome of Christian worship should create and exhibit. Um, you know, we need to understand, and this is 
what the, glo the glory of the gospel does for us, we should understand that everybody that belongs to Jesus belongs to everybody that belongs to Jesus. Uh, we need to realize that particularly from the point of view of the Christian faith, there is only one race, and it's called the human race. Um, we don't need to uh, be forced to affirm everything about everybody, but the other side of that coin is we don't spend all of our time judging everything about everybody. We just love each other, um, and, and we leave the judgment to God, um, and we just love each other, and we receive each other into the body. We're just one beggar telling other beggars where they can find bread. Um, this should be the spirit of the body of Christ. And, and that sacred meal, the, the, the Lord's Supper, should uh, exhibit that and create that as we have that meal again with Jesus and experience the love of Jesus. You know, we Christians should be the first in the room to be able to relinquish our opinions. Now, I'm saying opinions not essential convictions, but we should be the first in the room to relinquish our opinions for the sake of peace, for the sake of unity. We should be the first in the room to relinquish our personal preferences uh, for the sake of peace, for the sake of unity. Um, and we have to be careful because by human nature, we just look out for number one. For human nature, we look out for number one and those people closest to us. Um, but the Lord's Supper should bring a different reality into our lives. So this is how they were abusing the Lord's Supper um, here in Corinth. And this is what was going on, most of us believe, as we read between the lines here in the text, as to what was going on uh, that led Paul to have to say some pretty harsh words to the church at Corinth. Uh, after this text, um, where we'll begin next week in verse 23 of the 11th chapter, Paul will begin to talk about what the Lord's Supper is. And he'll give us the oldest account of the Lord's Supper that we find in the New Testament. Um, he, he will explain to us a little bit more of um, his teaching concerning the Lord's Supper after he has now talked to us about not abusing the Lord's Supper. Um, we Christians should be able to, call, be able to show the world around us uh, what unity can look like. We don't need organizational unity to be spiritually united. We don't need to agree with each other on everything to be spiritually united. And that's why when we come together to celebrate the Lord's Supper, we gather around Christ. Not our preferences, not our opinions. And that's why we can hold a lot of those things uh, very loosely so that we can let go of those things for the sake of the essentials of the faith. And, um, you know, I know the world around us um, uh, makes a lot of money. The world around us uh, gets a lot of notoriety by, by dividing us as human beings, by even dividing us as Christians. But the Lord's Supper definitely should be something that brings us together. So this is, this is a good stopping place. Uh, because I don't want to move into the next topic uh, till, we're, till we're together again, which we will pick up on verse 23, 
where Paul, in, in just addressing the abuse here, goes on to talk about what the Lord's Supper is. Again, thank you for sharing this time together. Uh, it is a blessing to me, and I appreciate uh, you giving uh, attention to a serious study of the Word of God. God bless you.